On February the 24th, 1947, an American businessman called Eugene Labar boarded a bus in Mexico City with his wife, heading to the United States. The couple had lived in Mexico for six years, but Mrs. Labar had recently inherited some property in Maine, and the two wanted to see it in person, and they planned on doing a little sightseeing along the way. And so they set off along the dusty highways of northern Mexico. But on the road north, Eugene began to complain of a headache and a peculiar rash beginning to spread over his body. They stopped at a truck stop and bought some aspirin and soon Eugene felt a little better. They wound their way through Dallas, Cincinnati and Pittsburgh before finally ending up in New York City, where they stopped to do a little shopping before the next leg of their trip. New York, at this time, must have been an electric place. Only two years before, the streets of Manhattan had exploded in jubilant celebration at the end of the Second World War. And the war had also turned the city's fortunes around, finally lifting it out of the Depression and ushering in a new era of prosperity. But after a couple of days of walking through the bustling crowds of downtown Manhattan, full of peanut sellers and buzzing motor cars, Eugene began to feel worse. And this time, aspirin didn't help. On March the 5th, he entered Bellevue Hospital on First Avenue. There, the doctors assumed he was having an adverse reaction to the large amount of aspirin he'd been taking and told him to stop. But on March the 8th, when the rash showed no signs of abating, they grew increasingly worried and transferred him to the William Parker Hospital in Manhattan, which specialised in communicable diseases. Two days later, Eugene was dead. The doctors there were confused, and his cause of death was ruled as a skin infection. Among the patients who were at William Parker Hospital at the same time as Eugene was Ismail Acosta, a 27-year-old hospital worker who had been suffering with mumps, and a 22-month-old girl who had an infection of the upper airway. While in the hospital, both had recovered enough from their illnesses, but after being discharged, returned a few days later with strikingly similar symptoms to that of the late businessman, a severe headache and a strange, burning rash all over their bodies. Both, were initially diagnosed with chickenpox. But already a creeping possibility was beginning to spread among the hospital staff. That was, that the pair had been infected with a disease that in most parts of the world had now been all but wiped out. The terrible, ancient danger of smallpox. Once the alarm was raised, the hospital acted fast. The man who found himself at the centre of this catastrophe was a Dr. Israel Weinstein, the Commissioner of Health for New York City. He remembers the frantic effort that overtook the entire city. The moment that smallpox was suspected, all employees and patients at the Willard Parker Hospital were vaccinated. The case of Eugene Labar was carefully reviewed. Further study of the skin lesions was made and the diagnosis of smallpox was established. In a crowded, 
densely packed city like New York, where hundreds of thousands of people lived, worked and travelled together every day, a virulent disease like smallpox posed an immediate and existential threat. Weinstein was an old military man, a veteran of the First World War, who had helped to fight infectious diseases among the troops. And with memories of the Second World War only just beginning to fade, the city of New York was immediately put on to what can only be described as a war footing. 179 city buildings, schools, hospitals, police and fire stations were rapidly repurposed into vaccination stations. But Weinstein knew that the vaccine wouldn't do any good if people didn't take it. And so he began a public relations blitz. He flooded the press with photo shoots of important figures like the mayor and even the president, Harry Truman, getting vaccinated, leading to the vaccination program becoming front page news. In one particularly ingenious bit of marketing, photos were taken of the glamorous showgirls of the city's famous Diamond Horseshoe Club lining up to receive their vaccine. Weinstein also took to the airwaves to urge listeners to protect themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time we present a special address by Dr. Israel Weinstein, Commissioner of Health for the City of New York. Dr. Weinstein. Ladies and gentlemen, the subject of smallpox and vaccination is still the one uppermost in the minds of a great many people. We have now reached the most difficult part of the program. Those people who are intelligent and who won't take a chance and who realize the importance of vaccination, they for the most part have gone to their physicians and to the clinics and have been protected. Now we come to those who are more reluctant, who are slower, some who don't realize the necessity of vaccination, and some who are just putting it off, putting it off indefinitely. Now we have vaccinated in this city considerably more than half the people, but we haven't finished the job. The plan worked. In just under a month, nearly six and a half million people were vaccinated. In April, the city announced that the outbreak was over and remarkably, only two deaths had been recorded. Smallpox, a disease that had once been endemic to every major city in Europe, Asia and Africa, that had taken the lives of a third of all its victims, had now been defeated in one of the most populated highly visited cities in the world in under 30 days. In the great cities of Europe and North America, the war for smallpox had been won, but the final battle would be fought all over the world. I'm Annie Kelly, and this is Vaccine. This is the story of a campaign against disease, how it was planned and organized, and how the people responded to it. The last battle is being fought now against a terrifying disease for which there is no cure. The means of preventing it, immunization. The world and all its peoples have won freedom 
a disease which causes terrible suffering and blindness and which scars for life every person who survives it. The only human disease to be eradicated globally. The greatest public health triumph in history. But let's start from the beginning. I'm afraid you must prepare yourselves for a shock. I hoped I might be wrong, but I'm sorry to say Dr. Williams agrees with me. Well, let's have it. It's smallpox, I'm afraid. Smallpox? But that's impossible. Unlikely, but not impossible. How can she have got smallpox? Just what we've got to try to find out, Mrs. Lee. You've never had her vaccinated, have you? No. No, never. I've always been meaning to. By the 1940s, mass vaccination had been so successful as a preventative strategy that few people in the West ever even thought about smallpox. Well, it's not the sort of thing you expect in this country, is it, sir? For them, the disease was now just one of the many horrors that humanity had left behind in the dim and distant past. But the outbreak in New York in 1947 had made one thing very clear. So long as smallpox still existed anywhere in the world, no one could be safe. It would always be out there, lurking, waiting for its opportunity to strike. And so the attention of the world began to turn to the last places on Earth where this terrible disease still lingered. These were often small, isolated states with fragile economies. Many of them were European colonies in Africa and Asia, and they had suffered from the negligence and indifference of colonial administrations. One example is the West African country of Nigeria. Nigeria had been a British colony since the mid-19th century, and Britain had extracted great wealth from its palm oil industry, and more recently by extracting crude oil from its southern oil fields. But British authorities were often slow to respond to the needs of the colony's people. In the year 1947, the same year that Eugene Labar and his wife took that fateful bus journey from Mexico and the city of New York marshaled enormous resources to protect itself, another smallpox outbreak began in Nigeria. But this outbreak didn't meet anything like the same level of response. In fact, it took a whole year for British authorities to launch a mass vaccination campaign, and by that time, the outbreak had become an epidemic. Even once it got going, this mass vaccination campaign had mixed results. Many rural people in Nigeria were greatly suspicious of the British, and for good reason. From the earliest days of their rule there, British authorities had implemented a despised system of taxation, with the aim of forcing indigenous Nigerians to shift their livelihoods away from farming and into wage labour. While slavery had been officially abolished in British colonies a century or so before, bitter memories of its cruelty still lingered, and Nigerians were still sometimes forced to labour on the empire's public works projects. And so, when the mass vaccination campaign began, to many it was received as just another imposition by a callous imperial overlord. One British official, writing in the following colonial report, places the blame for this vaccine hesitancy on the native people. Concealment of and refusal to isolate cases 
Together with apathy and even hostility to vaccination on the part of the population, greatly impeded the work of the health staff dealing with the outbreak. But slowly, things would begin to change. Nigeria won independence in 1960, and by this time, health workers had learned to work with and not against the local people. It was into this environment, in the excitement and the uncertainty of a newly independent Nigeria, that a young and ambitious health worker was posted in the year 1965. His name was William Fagey, and he would play a decisive role in the final battle against humanity's most cruel and deadly enemy. Dr. William Fagey was 29 when he and his family were posted to Nigeria with the aim of helping church groups there to build their capacity for preventative health. Fagey was something of a giant, standing at 6 foot 7 inches tall. But in most other respects, he was just like any other idealistic health mission worker, sent to remote regions of the world to improve public health. But Fagey also had an ambitious streak. While studying at Harvard, he had to choose his own topic to write on for one class, and he decided to write a paper on something that to many at the time seemed like an impossible pipe dream. That is, the total eradication of smallpox. In his memoir, published nearly 50 years later, Fagey recalls the uproar his paper caused among his classmates, and even with his teacher. My presentation sparked an intense debate. I used the word eradicate in my presentation quite deliberately, both because I believed in the possibility of eradication and because many people didn't. Some believed that eradication was impossible because of the failed attempts at eradicating both yellow fever and malaria. Others assumed that emptying a viral niche was impossible, even though species extinction occurs all the time. But after graduating, Fagey didn't think much more about this episode, or about smallpox. His dream was to work in medical missions in developing countries, building clinics and training local people in healthcare practices. And so, in 1965, he and his family were sent to the remote Agoja region of eastern Nigeria, the small village of Yahe, to set up a clinic. In his memoir, Fagey remembers his first impressions on arriving in Lagos, the bustling capital of Nigeria. Lagos was hot, humid, colorful, noisy, and crowded. People were accustomed to living in very close quarters, whether on the street, in queues, in taxi cabs, or in the market. Soon, they took the long, dusty road out into the east of Nigeria, and then onto their new home in Yahe, where they excited a great deal of curiosity among the locals. Our home was a mud-walled house with four rooms. For washing up, we put a tub on the floor and carried in water. In the village, the living room of every home was considered communal. It was not only accepted, but expected that village members would enter our living room and sit down to observe and learn about us. This they did daily so the learning was reciprocal. Here, they learned the major local language of Yala and set up their clinic, 
And it was here that Fagy came face to face with the disease he had written about while at Harvard, a horror that his studies could hardly have prepared him for. You can smell smallpox before you enter the patient's room, but it's hard to describe. Even medical textbooks fall short when it comes to smells. The odor, probably the result of decaying flesh from pustules, is reminiscent of the smell of a dead animal. In one house I might find a baby, face swollen, eyes closed, breathing hard, thick with raised, pus-filled blisters. In such cases, I would have to admit that there was nothing to be done. The devastated parents were about to lose a child. In another house, a young man might be wearing only a loincloth because he didn't want anything touching his face or limbs, which were covered with lesions. His face was contorted with pain. He wanted only to die. In rural Africa, smallpox wasn't typically a constant threat in a particular area, but instead roamed around the country like a dark cloud, infecting one place and then the next in waves, every 10 or 20 years. When the disease ran out of fresh victims, it would move on, as Fagy recalls. Smallpox transmission was typically lower during the rainy season, when people traveled less. After the monsoons, the virus would be on the move again. A village's residents would conclude, after some years without a smallpox case, that smallpox was a problem of the past, only to have the virus arrive with a visitor, vendor, or traveler. The outbreak would totally destroy the rhythm of life, interfering with farming and commerce as the youngest parents were infected, often from their children, and as families buried the dead. The novelist Lara Bahanan, who lived in eastern Nigeria during this time, puts the situation in staggering terms. By now... I thought of smallpox as a treacherous, hungry sea beating steadily against crumbling dikes. At the first advance of the water, the countryside had seethed and boiled with the movement of people fleeing before it. It must be thus when empires fall and a whole society goes crashing into ruin. The fear that tears father from child, brother from brother, husband from wife. There is no law but nightmare. Faced with the daily reality of this horror, Fagy found himself returning again and again to that paper he had written at university. The paper that had caused such a strong debate among his classmates. And he began to wonder whether this terrible disease could actually be eradicated once and for all. Little did he know that events in the wider world would soon catch up with him. Much of the old opposition to vaccination has gone. That is proved by the rush of people seeking to be immunised. Clearly, the peril is recognised by the majority of people. The spread of smallpox must be prevented. Eradication was not a new dream, and recent developments in technology 
meant that some of the technical challenges that had previously stood in the way now had a chance of being overcome. Until now, it had been difficult to get vaccine material into hot, humid climates, where it needed to be constantly refrigerated to stop from spoiling. But one crucial development was the invention of a method for freeze-drying cowpox lymph, which meant it didn't need to be refrigerated, and could simply be carried around in a satchel. Up until now, vaccinations had been performed with a high-tech piece of equipment known as a jet injector. But in 1965, an astonishingly simple piece of equipment, known as a bifurcated needle, was introduced which could administer vaccines cheaply, quickly, and efficiently. Now, at least 100 vaccinations could be performed from just one vial of freeze-dried vaccine. As early as 1958, the Soviet Union had proposed a resolution to the World Health Assembly, calling for the eradication of smallpox. This resolution passed, but contained no meaningful plan of action, and so, nothing came of it. At its May 1965 meeting, seven years later, the issue was brought up again to the Assembly. Both the United States and Soviet Union backed the idea in principle, but there were disagreements over how the programme should be funded. Once again, a resolution passed supporting the idea, but with no plan or budget attached to it. It seemed everyone agreed that it would be a great thing if smallpox were eradicated, but no one was willing to foot the bill. Many in the World Health Assembly were worried that they would spend a huge proportion of their annual budget only to fail, and that the doomed effort would draw energy away from their efforts to combat malaria and other diseases. But finally, in 1966, a resolution was passed that allocated funds to this effort, and global health professionals around the world were able to get to work. But the challenges were still enormous. In 1967, smallpox was endemic in 33 countries with a combined population of 1.2 billion, and cases would regularly spill over into 14 others. 10 to 15 million cases were occurring each year around the world, with less than 5% ever being reported to health authorities. Of these, millions would die, and many others were scarred and blinded. The World Health Assembly had allocated a sum of $2.7 million to the effort. This was a significant part of their annual budget, but faced with the task ahead, it was a trifling amount. This was about a fifth of a cent for each person who still lived in a smallpox-afflicted country, and so a programme of mass vaccination like the one New York had undergone in the 1940s was out of the question. If the team was to succeed, they would have to make every dollar count. The leader of this team would be a man named Donald Ainsley Henderson. One member of his team remembers him in the following terms. It was said in ancient Greece that when Aeschines spoke, the crowd muttered, What a great orator! 
But when Demosthenes spoke, they shouted, Let us march. Donald Ainsley's qualities were those of the greatest leaders, and he applied them advantageously. Henderson was a pioneer of what he called shoe leather epidemiology, encouraging his epidemic investigators to go out into the field directly to collect data, trace points of infection, and build trust with local communities. But Henderson had been put in charge of a tiny and poorly funded team, as his writing makes clear. At our Geneva headquarters, there were only nine of us, and we never had more than 150 international staff in the field. We served primarily as catalysts, as it was the countries themselves that actually did the job, that took an interest in the program, and that became increasingly enthusiastic and committed. Faced with this daunting task, Henderson would soon find help from an unlikely quarter. That's the six-foot-seven health worker, William Fagey, still working in eastern Nigeria. On December the 4th, 1966, Fagy received some troubling news from a German missionary named Hector Ottermüller on his crackling radio. The word was that an outbreak of smallpox had occurred in the small village of Ovirpua, in Agoja province. Fagy travelled out to meet Ottermüller. The village was many miles from a road, and so the pair got hold of a couple of motorbikes, buzzing out into the countryside and carrying them across log bridges that span the province's rivers. When they arrived at the village, Fagy found a number of people suffering from smallpox. We knew this was smallpox, but we did not know its extent. How many villages were involved? How many people were sick and how many were in the incubation period? Had it just been introduced to the area or had it been smoldering for some time? The standard response was to vaccinate everyone in the surrounding area, a miniature version of the enormous effort that had been undertaken in New York. But there was just one problem. Fagy didn't have anywhere near enough vaccine. If he was to stop the outbreak, he would need to use what vaccine he had in the most efficient and effective way possible. When he was a teenager, Fagy had worked for two summers in the US Forest Service in Washington and Oregon, and had been put to work in the annual labor of putting out wildfires in national parks. In remote areas, access to water was a rarity, and forestry workers had to extinguish fires by isolating them, digging trenches around them, and cutting them off from their fuel. The principles were simple and drilled into us repeatedly. Separate the fuel from the flames, and the fire stops. Usually, this meant building a fire line that went right down to the soil, so the flames could not cross it. Years later, and more than 12,000 kilometers away in the palm forests of eastern Nigeria, that experience would come back to him. Fagi decided on an ingenious course of action. Our plan was straightforward. First, we vaccinated the currently infected villages. For those recently exposed, vaccination would greatly reduce the disease's impact, if not prevent it. Those exposed even two weeks earlier 
would still get smallpox, but they would be surrounded by vaccinated people, making further transmission of the virus very difficult. If we were fortunate, it might even stop transmission totally. Second, we made some informed guesses regarding other places where the virus was most likely incubating. We identified three, all within a 15-mile radius, and decided to use the remaining vaccine there. By the time clinical cases were detected in two of these places, the remaining population was already protected, and smallpox was stopped in its tracks. By removing the fuel one step ahead of the virus, we had built a fire line around it. Fagi and his team would take the lessons they had learned in Agoja and try this technique out in several other outbreaks over the coming year. And each time, they would be an enormous success. So much so, that by 1967, they had all but eradicated smallpox in eastern Nigeria, far ahead of expectations. They presented the results of their work in Agoja to the Centre for Disease Control, who held a meeting in Ghana in 1967, and they caused a ripple of excitement and contention. Although it faced some resistance at first, Fagi's technique would come to be known as ring fence vaccination, and over the coming years it would come to completely replace the strategy of mass vaccination that, until then, had been the principal tactic in the war against smallpox. The technique that had been developed out of necessity in a small village in eastern Nigeria would soon be rolled out around the world, armed with the new weapon of ring vaccination. By 1973, the WHO and their local coordinators had successfully eradicated smallpox in Latin America, Indonesia and most of Africa, with the exception of Ethiopia. But it was in India that the disease dug in its heels and refused to budge. William Fagy's method of ring fence vaccination had been successful in rural West Africa, where many communities were small, static and isolated villages, with a few cities. But India had a population of more than 500 million. What's more, that population was exceptionally mobile. India's extensive railway system ran nearly 11,000 trains daily, while the state transport system was said to have carried 10 million passengers a day. And it didn't help that people's favourite time for travelling was in the cool, dry season, the most favourable conditions for the smallpox virus to survive. Any vaccination effort here would take enormous amounts of manpower. And so, in 1973, the Indian government took a bold step. They mobilised all available health personnel from across the country to begin weeks of house-to-house searches of any areas that had suspected outbreaks. But these searches only revealed just how bad the situation had become, as the leader of the campaign, Donald Henderson, writes. The results were astounding. One state had been reporting about 500 cases a week, but the search teams found 10,000 cases. It was really a black day. We had no idea it was this bad. 
the sheer amount of cases in the country demanded new incentives. Team members began handing out what they called smallpox cards in village marketplaces. These showed a picture of a typical smallpox victim and offered a reward of $12.50 to anyone who reported a new case to them. And it worked. By Christmas 1974, outbreaks were decreasing, but not at nearly the rate the team had hoped. William Fagey wrote the following desperate account in a letter to a colleague. We have tightened up containment and will finish up despite the transmission potential. But the last six weeks have been like a slow motion nightmare as we have not been able to move fast enough to keep up with the problems. India is a vast country which borders seven other nations. And some of these borders were very new, either sketched hastily by the British during their withdrawal in 1947 or torn violently in the Indo-Pakistan War of 1971. When the Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi announced a state of national emergency in 1975 and launched a massive crackdown on civil rights and political opposition, the situation only got worse. For all these reasons, it's easy to imagine that a young health worker would feel a sense of trepidation about stepping into this dangerous world. Dr. Cornelia E. Davis was finishing her pediatric residency in East Los Angeles when she received a call from the WHO asking her to come to India in 1975. Davis, as an African-American woman, was not what most people expected from a World Health Organization officer. In the entire time she worked on the program in India, she would meet only one other woman in the field and no other black women. In her autobiography, she recalls several of her team members across India reacting in disbelief when they met, that she was the Dr. Davis they were meant to be working for. But Davis had a skill for people, a charismatic confidence that people found disarming even when they didn't speak the same language. And she would put this talent to use when the WHO sent her to work in West Bengal, a humid, tropical state in the east of India, that rises from the steamy mangrove swamps of the Ganges Delta up to the foothills of the Himalayas, and which shares borders with three other countries, Nepal, Bhutan and Bangladesh. The border situation was extremely tricky. People constantly crossed the borders of this divided land for business and trade, religious festivals, funerals and weddings. But the World Health Organization's team were forced to keep within their national lines, meaning that they couldn't always follow smallpox wherever it went. And eradicating smallpox in one country would be worth nothing if it could travel back over the border from another. One of Davis's main goals was to place teams of vaccinators on the border of Bangladesh. This would mean that when people crossed the border, they could get vaccinated leaving smallpox with nowhere to hide. Everything seemed to be going to plan. The border guards at the official checkpoints agreed to help the teams. But Davis quickly realised that the situation was much messier than she had thought. The guard agreed to my posting two vaccinators, but as we drove away, 
we could see people crossing away at other places. There were untold numbers of unofficial border crossings. It seemed that more people were crossing at these points than at the official sites. On this fractured and conflict-ridden border, where the proper papers were difficult to come by, most people turned to the services of organized crime and gangs of people smugglers to get them where they needed to be. And so Cornelia Davis made a quite remarkable decision. She would reach out to the smugglers and try to get them involved in the vaccination effort. I decided it was important to put some vaccinators on these unofficial routes. I was worried, though, about placing vaccinators on the smugglers' routes. If the smugglers thought my vaccinators were trying to take over their routes, it could be dangerous for them. I needed to try and talk to the head smuggler if possible. Davis's colleagues warned her against the plan. These gangs of smugglers operated outside the confines of the law and were famously unpredictable and paranoid. But that wasn't the only danger. If the Indian authorities in West Bengal found out that a member of the WHO was collaborating with criminals, the diplomatic fallout could destroy everything they'd worked so hard to achieve. But Davis could see that there was no other way. Actually getting hold of the smugglers proved to be no small task. By the very nature of their business, they did not want to be found. Davis and her team began putting out feelers as they conducted their vaccinations in local areas. They identified which tea shops were positioned near strategic crossing points and where they thought smugglers might be likely to hang out. And wherever they went, they mentioned that they were interested in making contact. It felt surreal. I realized we were looking for a needle in a haystack. I wasn't even sure if the smuggler's hideaway was on the Indian side of the border. Then, one day, their efforts paid off. Davis's Indian colleague Dinesh returned with some good news. The smugglers had made contact. With a flicker of apprehension, the team was taken to a small house, set off behind some paddy fields, with a high compound wall and a gateway watched over by armed guards. Inside, they were taken into a dim, candlelit room where the shadowy figure who ran the organization was sitting. Davis remembers the scene with a note of trepidation. I entered a dimly lit room with no windows to the outside. I looked up and realized there was already someone else in the room. He was sitting cross-legged, somewhat higher than me on a sort of divan and some cushions. I reminded myself it's best not to stare directly at his face. Davis approached the underworld figure and began to speak. Namaste. I said, my name is Connie Davis, and I work for the WHO in the smallpox program. I'm sure you are aware of this important program and that India is down to the very last cases of smallpox. Unfortunately, Bangladesh still has a lot of outbreaks, so I'm concerned that smallpox importations could occur from Bangladesh. 
I rushed on, speaking hurriedly. I asked to see you because I want to put some smallpox vaccinators on the border in some of the areas that are considered unofficial crossover points. I stopped talking because I didn't want to exactly accuse him of smuggling. So look, I don't really care what you might be smuggling across the border. It's not my business. But if I put vaccinators on the border, I don't want them hurt. We don't take names. My voice trailed off because I couldn't think of anything else to say. In the dimly lit room, there was a period of silence. Davis must have held her breath. Then the shadowy figure spoke. It's okay. You can place your vaccinators. Cornelia Davis felt a flood of relief and beat a hasty departure. I was so relieved that I jumped up and started backing out of the room. Lingering was not an option. I met up with Dinesh in the waiting room. He was relieved to see me. I said, let's go. I'll explain when we get out of here. In the days and weeks that followed, Davis watched with bated breath to see if the new policy would have any effect. And remarkably, it did. The people smuggling gangs cooperated fully with the World Health Organization, allowing health workers to vaccinate the people they smuggled. And what's more, they even seemed to encourage their customers to get vaccinated. It seems they had made a calculation as old as time, that smallpox is bad for business. Davis recalls the astonishing success of this unlikely pact. Later, when I asked a vaccinator working with the smugglers if he had any trouble, he would say the word was put out to for everyone to cooperate with us and get vaccinated. Funny, the vaccinators at the informal crossings were vaccinating far more than those who were serving travelers going through official channels. Davis's story and the countless others like it around the world show just how creative health teams had to be to pursue smallpox to the ends of the earth, the compromises they had to make, and the strange alliances they would have to forge. To beat smallpox, sometimes they would even have to step outside the bounds of the law. In April 1977, the International Commission for the Assessment of Eradication of Smallpox visited the country and concluded, once and for all, that after a battle of millennia, smallpox had been eradicated in India. Now, there are only three countries left where men and women run any risk of catching smallpox. To understand this war against smallpox, you must look at the countries where the last battles are being fought. This is Ethiopia. The world's last great outbreak of smallpox happened in Somalia, a country on the eastern horn of Africa. The year was 1976. The outbreak actually began three years earlier, across the border in Ethiopia, the last nation in Africa where smallpox was still endemic. At that point, the eradication campaign had only been allowed to work in the country for five years, and was making slow progress. The population of Ethiopia was widely dispersed, over a landmass twice the size of France. 
and a majority of its 25 million people lived more than a day's walk from any road. In most of Ethiopia, communications have hardly changed in thousands of years, and a local messenger will think nothing of walking for four days. You may have a vehicle, but that will probably only get you a very small part of the way. With luck, it will be possible to travel by mule. If not, then you go on foot, as the journey took nearly two days. Ethiopia was also a rich tapestry of different cultures and languages, and vaccinators would need to take more than one interpreter with them as they travelled from village to village. Stuart Gold, a 23-year-old volunteer for the Peace Corps, wrote the following. The WHO and Peace Corps workers did contribute to the eventual demise of smallpox in Ethiopia, but in fact it was the nationals on the ground, the translators, the helpers and the sanitarians, who worked alongside us, who deserve most of the credit. Without them, we would have been unable to navigate the nuances of Ethiopian culture and traditions. Much like in India, workers had to navigate an increasingly dangerous political situation. In 1973, a severe drought in the eastern and northeastern parts of the country led to a devastating famine. And this, in part, triggered a revolution against the Emperor Haile Selassie, causing huge numbers of refugees to flock from remote regions where smallpox was endemic, spreading the disease across the country and across the border into neighbouring Somalia. The careful, step-by-step practice of ring-fence vaccination worked well on populations who stayed relatively still, but when entire communities were forced to abandon their homes all at once, the system broke down. Health workers on the ground began to sound the alarm about a potential catastrophe brewing. Somalia, which had been free of smallpox since 1963, was now witnessing outbreaks across border towns, and the disease was spreading fast, gleefully consuming whole villages. The disaster quickly escalated. In April 1977, there were 150 cases spread across the southern part of the country. A month later, there were 600. Somalia is a country of 15 million people, virtually all of whom are Muslim, and health workers feared that if the outbreak wasn't stopped by the autumn, the annual ritual of the pilgrimage to Mecca would begin. If pilgrims brought smallpox to Mecca, from there it could be dispersed all over the world. The last 10 years of painstaking, careful work would be undone, and the dream of smallpox eradication would be set back, perhaps forever. Somalia declared a state of national emergency and appealed to the United Nations Disaster Relief Organization for assistance. By the peak of the outbreak in June, at least 3,000 members of staff were working on the eradication program, searching the towns and villages for cases, encouraging patients to isolate, and vaccinating all their close contacts. In this country school, a doctor from Brazil is now carrying on the fight that has already been won in his own country. In an Ethiopian school like this one, the children may come from far distant homes, and therefore the children have become a most effective information network for their own particular area. 
time and again they draw a blank. No cases, nobody knows. And then quite suddenly it can happen. Not in his village, but somewhere where he knows of a case, somewhere on the map that they can identify. Now it begins. They can act. First, a report to the local headquarters run by the Ethiopian government and the World Health Organization. Another possible outbreak, another pin on a map. The problem now is not to find where the place is. Although they can identify it well enough, the difficulty is to get there. It can be a wild goose chase. In this case, it wasn't. The woman did have smallpox, just as the boy at school had said. This is what the battle is all about. Health workers freed up by the victorious battle against smallpox in India flooded into the country and a mass vaccination campaign began. Over 90% of the population of southern Somalia had been vaccinated by September and cases finally began to fall. The very last person to catch smallpox in the natural way was Ali Malin, a 23-year-old hospital cook working in the port town of Merka, Somalia. Marlin had actually worked briefly as a vaccinator, but had himself never been satisfactorily vaccinated, even though the vaccine was mandated for hospital workers. His reasons were quite simple, as he remembered them. I was scared of being vaccinated. It looked like the short hat. In October of the year 1977, just a few months after the Somalian outbreak had been contained, a health officer drove into town looking for the hospital, transporting a mother and her two sick children. Ali kindly offered to get in the vehicle and give them directions. He was only in the car for a few minutes, but nine days later he began to feel feverish. A few days afterwards, a rash appeared and he was diagnosed with chickenpox at the hospital. It was only after he had been discharged and visited by all sorts of friends and family that a visiting nurse realised the man was suffering from smallpox and raised the alarm. Over the next fortnight, nearly 55,000 people were vaccinated, beginning with those who had visited Marlin, then their families, then their neighbours. Marlin eventually recovered from the disease, but the experience clearly changed him and filled him with a sense of purpose. When Somalia began a drive to eradicate the disease polio, mobilising more than 10,000 volunteers to vaccinate 1.8 million children, and finally eradicate the disease in 2007, Malin was one of the first to line up and volunteer. He was later interviewed about his efforts. Now, when I meet parents who refuse to give their children the polio vaccine, I tell them my story. I tell them how important these vaccines are. I tell them not to do something foolish like me. For years after Marlin's case, the World Health Organization kept a watchful eye on the world. Their warehouses were full of vaccine material and bifurcated needles. Their health teams on standby to leap into action and stamp out any new outbreak. But none came. Gradually, a realisation began to dawn that perhaps the impossible dream had actually, finally, been achieved. The inventor of ring-fence vaccination, William Fagey, recalls his emotions at the time. The global chain of smallpox transmission was finally 
broken. Smallpox had been eradicated from the world because of a plan. It did not happen by accident. Public health had achieved its first complete success to eliminate a disease for current humanity and for all future generations. In May 1980, after years of careful monitoring, the World Health Organization assembled to announce that the disease no longer existed in the natural world. That hospital cook, Ali Mao Marlin, was the very final link in a chain that stretched back thousands of years, beginning with the first ever human being to suffer from smallpox. A chain that ran through pharaohs and kings, young and old, rich and poor alike. The invention of the vaccine was undoubtedly one of the most crucial steps to defeat smallpox. But as we've seen, it was only one part of that achievement. The vaccine was a tool, but it needed the work of millions of people, and not all of them doctors and scientists. Before the vaccine even existed, the practice of inoculation born in the lands of India, China and Turkey would travel to Europe through fashionable socialites like Mary Montague. Dr. Edward Jenner, after building on this knowledge with the smallpox vaccine, would spend the majority of his time conversing with ordinary people who were interested in the new technology and teaching them how to use it for themselves. The World Health Organization relied on an army of volunteers in every country they visited, both foreign and local, to collect information, track down new cases, and most importantly of all, persuade people to be vaccinated. It's easy to think of vaccines as a simple flashpoint of technological brilliance in one man, but it has been people from every culture and every class that we have to thank for a world where none of us need ever feel the forgotten terror of smallpox again. I called this podcast The Human Story to honour all of these people, but also because I think in the time of a pandemic, when so many of us were cut off from our friends and loved ones, we found out how important human connections are to us. Through my work as a researcher, I travelled to rallies made up of people who didn't trust the new vaccines created to combat coronavirus and refused to take them. And it seemed that for many of those people, they had forgotten the human element of this technology, which they spoke about as a frightening imposition. Those ideas are nothing new, as this podcast has shown. And I believe that it's only through understanding that history and what it tells us about people's very real needs and fears that the human struggle for life, health and happiness can go on today. I want to end this series with a short poem by the English writer and poet Owen Feltham in the year 1661 nearly a hundred years before Edward Jenner was even born. It's a story of suffering through the hardship of disease and coming out stronger, with scars that show what a great battle you fought against such a fearsome foe. I would like to dedicate it to all the people who suffered and died, all the people who fought and struggled and came away with scars, all the links in the great chain of that human story our final victory against smallpox.
Why foul disease in cheek or eye should not your small impressions lie? Or why aspired you to that place, the graceful promont of her face? Alas, we see the rose and snow in one you could not overthrow, and where the others do but please to look and shine, she killed disease. Then, as some sulphurous spirit sent by the torn air's distemperment, so thou too feeble to control the guest within her purer soul, hast out of rage to things of grace, left thy sunk footsteps on the place. Yet fear not, maid, since so much fair is left than these things can impair. Scars do not disgrace, but show valor well freed from a bold foe. This shall be honor and palm to time and thee. Thank you for listening to Vaccine. I'd like to thank my voice actors, Ayanna Gallant, Alfonso Gianza, Brian Shikuyu, Paul Cooper, Gary Middleton, and Sherry Carter Brownwell. This series wouldn't be possible without the hard work of our academic team Dr. Agnes Arnold Forster, Kristen Brigg Ortiz, and Dr. Gareth Millwood at the University of Birmingham, who acted as a special consultant. Vaccine is an independent show and we prefer not to disrupt our programme with advertising and sponsorship. Although the series has come to an end, our Patreon will remain active, so if you enjoyed Vaccine, please consider heading to www.patreon.com forward slash vaccine podcast to contribute something and support the production of more quality historical programming. If you've been moved by the story we've told, please consider supporting a campaign that is working towards international vaccine equity, ensuring that life-saving vaccines can get to the people who need them the most. Their name is the Go Give One campaign. If you're interested, please head to www.gogiveone.org and contribute today. For now, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>